Sunstrom Recruitment are the leaders in health and safety recruitment. If you're considering a career change or need to discuss your organisation's hiring, reach out to the team today. We were awarded Recruitment Agency of the Year in Health and Safety in 2023 and are a proud sponsor of Health and Safety Conversations. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Health and Safety Conversations. Here's your host, Tom Bourne. Hi and welcome to Health and Safety Conversations. I'm your host, Tom Bourne, and with me today is the marvellous Tanya Hallett. Tanya, how are you? I am very well, thank you, Tom. How are you? Great. It's a uh, beautiful day in Perth. Great to be alive. It is. The humidity's gone down today, so yay! Yeah. I was up in the Pilbara yesterday. It was a mere 39 degrees, so it's a, it's a nice change coming <laughs> back home. <laughs> Practically Arctic, isn't it, really? <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> All right, Tanya, I know a little bit about you, but for those who are unfamiliar with you so far, can you tell us a little bit about you and your professional journey? Okay, so look, it's a little bit convoluted, but I'm going to keep it as short and sweet so we don't bore everybody. So I have been a teacher trainer for the last 20 years. So I started teaching and spent six years in Japan. Mm-hmm. And that was the first part of my career. And when I came back to Australia, I ended up working from sort of private, beautifully behaved, all girls, Japanese high schools <laughs> to some pretty hard to staff schools in the Perth area. And so I started working in these schools where kids had really significant traumatic backgrounds. There was a lot of, there could be a lot of violence. There was a lot of trauma, a lot of mental health issues. Kids were lovely, but very, very emotionally, very, very unregulated and had a lot of trouble engaging with kind of the traditional classroom atmosphere, I suppose. And I just found that when I worked with those kids, I felt like I was making a lot more of a difference. And it really was so rewarding when you could make a connection with these kids and they'd come to you 
and they'd come to you for sort of help and guidance. A lot of them had incredibly tough homes and it was really, I felt very important in the respect that we had to be that role model for these kids to come to, to be their safe place. Because a lot of kids who come from those environments, school is their safe place. That's where they go. And then I became very, very interested in trauma and working with complex trauma and people who suffer with trauma. And when you started to see behaviour through a trauma lens, it was just, you could really understand, you could nearly predict what their behaviour was going to be and how your response needed to vary to that behaviour. So that was really the start of everything. I was there at one particular school for about 10 years, but it became increasingly stressful because there were a lot of fights some of them had become incredibly violent I remember one particular fight where I had two girls really really like it was like a prison fight they were ripping bunches of hair out of each other's heads they were kicking they were punching they were screaming I got in the middle and tried to stop the fight and I got shoved against some cabinets and then another student of mine actually came in and pushed me out the way and said, Miss, what do you think you're doing? She pushed me out of the way of the fight, got in to split up these two girls and got kicked in the head and had her finger broken. And it was pretty hardcore. And after that particular fight, I was really, really, really shaken up because it was one of the really, really worst ones I'd seen. And I had to have another student come in and protect me when I felt like it was my job to protect them. So a few incidents like that occurred. I had a a student also shove a rock into my mouth and then I thought you know what this is getting a little bit dangerous after every sort of new storm when I'd go home and tell my husband about what had happened and he'd say to me Tanya we've got two small children what's it going to take for you to get really really hurt mm. before you decide that maybe this isn't the right thing for you to be doing so I went from teaching into doing support work for a while and again, I went to look after an adolescent who had a very, you know, a severe trauma background and a few other, a few other disabilities. And this particular adolescent ended up becoming very violent and I was doing sleepover shifts with her mm. and she tried to set fire to the house. She one night really was unregulated and held my head over live electrical wires. I called the while she was throwing, you know, boiling hot water at them, I called the police. They said, look, it's a Sunday night in December. It's going to take us about four hours. We'll get to you when we get to you. And that night I thought, I'm going to die. I'm not going to get home to see my kids. That's it. This is it. This is where it all ends. And after that incident, I was diagnosed with PTSD. Mm. And that was really the start of where things changed from just teaching into me being incredibly passionate about, what it what it is what what's trauma-informed practice so that's the bit of a convoluted way of saying it sorry oh that's all right that's all right it's it's a very interesting story i get to tell you i know people who well most people i know who've got into the teaching practice and i know quite a few of them they've gone into it and there are certain professions which are all the same like this mm -hmm. you go in to help people you mm -hmm. go in to help the kids and a lot of the time you leave the industry or the profession, it having changed you instead of you changing the system. Absolutely. Your story, can I be honest with you, mm. is not unusual for teachers. Mm. I mm -hmm. I know some teachers who worked in Brisbane in 
very low socioeconomic areas. And what you're describing, absolutely picture perfect. Photo what they had. Yep, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yep. One of the ladies I know, first day there dealing with grade one, she was scratched, she was punched, mm -hmm. and she had a chair thrown at her. Mm -hmm. And this was from a grade one. Mm -hmm. Yep, 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 yep. If people really knew what was out there in some places, they would be really quite shocked, I yeah. think. <laughs> really and shocked. The thing also is uh, I know people who have basically tried to teach and try to help mm -hmm. children who are, 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 the only way I can say it is fundamentally broken. They're mm -hmm. fundamentally broken because of the trauma that they've been exposed to or lived through. Mm -hmm. And I've had to say to a few people, I've had to say, and it's a very cruel thing, you can't save them all. No. You... Mm -hmm. I don't think you can. I really, and I think it's heartbreaking for people who go into these professions with the absolute best intentions mm -hmm. and to see, yeah, they walk yeah. away a bit disillusioned. It's it's really tough because at the end of the day, you, you will not save them all. You do your best and mm. that's and that's all you can do. But it's very difficult when the actual systems that are set up are not, no, no systems are working in an integrated way to support each other. And that's one of the biggest issues. You've got your education system when really these are massive social issues that these kids are facing and they were broken long before they came to us and we're doing the best we can to fix them and you will help some and you won't help others that's true but it is a really it is really really tough it is an incredibly tough job it, it can be really rewarding but it can also be incredibly stressful and draining absolutely yeah I, I i sometimes wonder for people going into these professions if they should after 12 months perhaps realistically go what am i actually hoping to achieve mm -hmm. in this area is it that they be straight A students or this, or are you just trying to make them socially and civilly functional when they get older? Yeah, that, and you know what, for a lot of the time that I worked, that, and I still work in some more difficult schools, but sometimes that is absolutely what you try to focus on. How can I get this person as ready as possible for the world, for the workforce? And that's, and that's probably where what I'm doing is coming into it because I realised that I was working with these kids. They were leaving me. They were going into the workforce because they were ready to be apprentices or they were ready to be trainees. But the trauma that they had was following them and the people, the employers that they had didn't necessarily know how to deal with them either. And that's sort of what's been the driving force for this is that there's, there's a massive gap from where these kids go from school, where they are receiving pastoral care from us, yeah. to going to a workplace where they've got bosses who don't have this training and, and experience. Just... I know I'm dwelling on education a little bit at the moment, but that's because it's that's because it's an interest to me. But I, I sometimes think that society has now taken responsibility mm -hmm. of of parenting away from the parents and pushes it onto first of all the primary school teachers, mm -hmm. the high and school then the teachers, secondary teachers, mm -hmm. and then and then we find in the vocational education sector we're also left to pick up the pieces. Absolutely. 
I think it's fundamentally flawed. It is fundamentally flawed, but it's sort of like the genie's out of the bottle. How do you put it back in? And so because that's sort of the situation we've got, it's how do we best work within it. But you're absolutely right. I mean, what's happened is the buck's been passed for so long and, you know, stuff rolls downhill, doesn't it? That's right. <laughs> just, just on that, how did you cope? I mean, I, you, you mentioned you were diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm-hmm. How did you actually cope at school? being exposed to these things because we talk about psychologically safe. This is not even psychologically safe. This is Mm. not physically safe. No, no. And this is the thing, like I did a cert for in safety a really long time ago because what had become apparent to me was that safety in teaching was just for some reason being completely disregarded. There's a reason that we have you know, 50 to 80% of new graduates burning out within five years of being in the in the force and why there's lots of people that are, you know, the percentages of, of teachers that are leaving are significant. And this is because there is huge amounts of what you would call basic work health and safety issues that are not being looked after. So a lot of schools are pretty good with physical safety. If you work in the harder to staff schools, physical safety is an issue. So I had a lot of times where I was punched or shoved or definitely felt physically unsafe. Most of the time I knew the relationship with my students would protect me, but sometimes it didn't. When I was pregnant working in those schools, it was even more scary. Mm. And there was a time I had walked into the principal and I had said to her, hey, listen, I cannot be in that class. It is unsafe. And she said, you can't tell me what to do. You will go to the class. I've told you, you will go there. And I said, I'm not going in there. It is not safe. So how do you cope? You push back where you can. But for the for the most part, I think that it's swept under the rug a lot. I don't think the safety of teachers is being looked at nearly as well as it should be. Mm. And aside from the physical safety, the, the psychological hazards in that job are intense. They are horrendous. Psychosocial hazards there. It's, it's shocking. And if they don't do something about it soon, they're not going to have any people left to do the job. That's, that's true. I, I don't think it's actually restricted just to teaching. I, I find any industry where people are in, they've gone in for caring roles. So we've got mm-hmm. nursing, ambulance, mm-hmm. no offence, prison officers, police. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Everyone, they basically, they're subject to, no offence, fairly horrific risks day to day. And society's pushback on them is, it's part of the job. What did you expect? Well, I don't know if we'd accept those sort of risks in other workplaces. They just no. wouldn't be accepted. No. So I don't know why society or a large part of society seems to think that we either A, shouldn't talk about it or B, take any action about it or say that you chose that profession, toughen up, it's yours. Oh, you're you're absolutely right. And when I had raised, I had raised these issues quite a number of times because, I mean, my father, for for context, was a was a pilot for Royal Flying Doctor Service, and my dad has always been a real stickler about safety and processes and the things that exist to keep everybody safe. They exist to keep you safe. And every time I brought up safety and these issues of safety 
the response was exactly as you described. Oh, well, this comes with a job and if you can't hack it, maybe this isn't the right job for you. And I thought, oh, my goodness, this is just so unhelpful. And there's a lot of that that exists in a lot of uh, the industries you mentioned, other people that are dealing with the, a real but of horrendous, horrendous stuff that's happening in society and they are left to deal with it and they burn out fast. Yeah, yeah. Now, Tanya, I'm pretty ignorant in a lot of things in my life. Trauma-informed practice. Honestly, I don't know too much about the term. Yes, that's fair enough. You're not the only one who doesn't know much about that term. So it doesn't make you ignorant at all. <laughs> trauma-informed practice is, look, it's a, it's a buzz, people will call this a buzzword, you know, trauma-informed practice or trauma-informed care. And they'll go, oh, this is a buzzword people are talking about. But what it actually means in a nutshell is that recognising that a lot of people that you work with or that access your services or that, you know, are in the workplace with you or in schools with you actually suffer from a level of trauma themselves. Like it's mm. quite, it's quite common. In actual fact, the newest stats say that over a third of the people we have in Australia of young people suffer from complex trauma, which I'll sort of explain a bit later, but it's common. This is not an unusual thing. There are a lot of people walking around who have experienced significant trauma, whether that's been a one-off event or whether it's been lifelong of traumatic events. So trauma-informed practice, it's holistic, it's empowering, it's collaborative. It's sort of the way of working with people, understanding that their reactions to certain things that you say or certain things that you do is often a result of trauma and understanding that it's incredibly important you build relationship first you build trust first you have to use emotional intelligence mm -hmm. you have to give people you have to give people in these situations choice so that might look like okay I understand this is really difficult here are the options we have right now option A is this option B is this think about it which one do you think you would prefer because people who've gone through trauma have often gone through trauma because their own power has been taken away from them so trauma-informed practice is about giving it back to them giving them collaboration in this working out what they need to feel safe and understanding that people's heightened reactions to things are a reflection of the trauma that they've experienced so it's really important that you make sure that you check your reaction to them so that you don't escalate situations further. So it's a lot of um, reflective listening and just being really able to communicate in a really empathetic way and understanding that when someone, you know, flares up and starts getting angry, it's not about you. It's that they probably came to work and their cup was already full. And then you're, you know, something's happened and it's tipped them right over the edge because their cup wasn't empty to begin with. They weren't at baseline when they came to work. They weren't at baseline when they came to school. So, or they've had an incident that's pushed them way past baseline. So when you talk to this person, you have to remember that. And then your reactions need to be empathetic. You need to be trying to, you're, you're using crisis communication skills where you're trying to bring things right down. So that's what trauma-informed practice is. It's a lot about the communication and offering choice and empowerment for that other person. Okay. Does that explain it? Yeah, yeah, it does. Oh, good. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just, I can see a, a problem. I can see a little problem, well, at least in my head here. Someone comes to work, as you said, with a cup already full. Mm -hmm. 
fires off, flares mm-hmm. up, whatever you mm-hmm. want to call it. Mm-hmm. Chances are in modern workplaces, that person's probably going to find themselves in front of human resources. Mm-hmm. Are human resources equipped to understand this? Uh, that's a, such a good question, Tom. I don't think so. Look, some maybe. There are some people who work in human resources and, you know, working with people and they're very, they're, they're good. They've got good understanding of this, but largely no, because unless you've actually worked within trauma spaces, then this is a really hard, these seem like really simple concepts, but unless someone's explained this to you, it's not simple. And what happens is a situation that could honestly be solved really easily by taking a step back with the communication and by not escalating things further, just by reflective listening some of the time. Um, no, and, thing, and, and and it gets worse. Things escalate, people lose their jobs or, or, or situations get so much worse because people aren't trained to deal with this. They're really not. Yeah. And I don't believe that your run-of-the-mill human resource people are, are trained in this either for the most part. This is quite new. And honestly, I worked for 10 years in a really intense trauma space and it was my 10th year when I got any formal training in this. So that's a good indication of how commonly understood this really is. Okay. Mm. When, you, when, you, when, when you were exposed to trauma in the workplace, mm-hmm. symptoms, what made you want to go to the doctor and say, I have these problems because a lot of people are reluctant to mm-hmm. do that. And I'm just wondering, I, I hate to word, use the word symptoms, but it's kind of appropriate. No, no, it's absolutely appropriate. Yeah. What, what sort of symptoms were you suffering that made you go to a doctor? So what happened to me was, and my my case particularly also became a workers' comp case, which is a whole other ball game in itself. But what happened was I had come home after this particular incident, which was where I really did think I would die. And I came home and what would happen was you, so what the, the first thing I noticed was I was having trouble sleeping. Mm. I was exhausted, but I couldn't sleep. And then when I did get to sleep, I would have the most horrific nightmares where I dreamt that I was put back in the situation again, or I was in another situation where my life was threatened and I was trying to say, stop, stop, and and, and no one would listen. And I'd wake up and the bed sheets were covered, like they were wet with sweat. My nightie was wet with sweat. And I also found that I wouldn't even so i've i've got small children and at the time where i was really this is Paige, the co-host of giggly squad and i want to tell you about a company that i've been loving olive and june olive and june gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box and if you break it down it really comes out to two dollars a manicure which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Struggling. I was getting up and down to my youngest because she was about, I think, two at the time. And I was getting up and down to her. And I would get up to get her milk or water in the middle of the night. And I would walk past my windows and I was sure I could see the face of the person who'd held my head over these live wires. And I'd have to look again. Or you'd be listening for noise. Or you'd be walking outside. You'd be just walking down the street and and you'd be thinking, oh, no, something's going to happen. Something's going to happen. Or a car's going to jump out of nowhere and run me over. Or I'd hold on to the kids really tightly, being terrified something would happen to them. I One of the biggest incidents I had was when I was driving north on the freeway because I live south and I was driving north on the freeway and I had to drive past the exit of where this adolescent had lived that I'd helped and I had to go past that exit and I broke out in a cold sweat in the car and I was thinking shit I'm really not okay and I'm going 100 on the freeway and I thought I'm gonna have to pull over like am I even safe to to keep driving like Things like that happened, but the hypervigilance, being terrified something was going to happen, sort of seeing glimpses of things that weren't there or being sure someone was going to break into my house or being sure I was going to be stalked or all these sorts of things happened. And that's when I was sort of like, well, no, this this can't be normal. And I just, I'm pretty resilient. I'm pretty resilient. And I just was not coping. Mm. And I was exhausted. Is there is there a real danger that if people aren't diagnosed, they may start to think they're losing their mind? Oh, yeah. I did think I was losing my mind. I absolutely thought I was going crazy. So when I finally found a really good clinical psychologist, when I was diagnosed, I had been suffering from for, for four and a half months, five, sorry, five and a half months by the time I was diagnosed. Because when I went to my GP initially, she had said to me, and this isn't the GP I've got now, this was another GP. The one I've got now is fantastic. But the one I went to said to me, oh, look, I don't know if you've got PTSD because really you have to have these symptoms for six months before we can diagnose it, which, by the way, isn't true. It's supposed to be about a month, and if it's not better at a month, then you've got a problem. But you're also when you're also not validated, you're invalidated by the system, and people are saying to you, oh, look, your sense of safety is going to come back in time. You'll be all right. And I'm like, no, no, I'm not all right. And the real danger is that you do feel like you're going nuts because it's a real roller coaster. And when I found, when I was diagnosed finally by a psychiatrist, it really helped me to see that in the report because I thought, what is wrong with me? Why am I not coping? What is the matter with me? And my clinical psych, when I was having counselling with her, who's also fantastic, you know, I would say to her, I feel like I'm going crazy. I don't know how many times I said I'd feel, I feel like I'm going crazy. You do think you're going crazy. And you think, what is wrong with me? I've really lost the plot. And there is a real danger that if you're not diagnosed, if you're not given proper help by really, you know, by good medical professionals, then, yeah, it, it's going to get a lot worse. The hole gets deeper the longer you spend in it without getting the right help that you need. 
Yeah, I, I'm not, obviously I'm not a psychologist or psychiatrist, but I just wonder, eventually, for some people, this might be too much for them to bear and mm -hmm. they, may, they may, I don't know, harm yeah, themselves in they some do. way. They do, Absolutely. I think it's really common. What I think tends to happen with PTSD is what seems to be common is people are struggling. They either don't get help or like me, when they ask for help, they're being invalidated or fobbed off the time when they do ask for help and they will self-medicate. So that's when things like alcohol, uh, drugs, other types of behaviours type because it's self, they're trying to self-medicate. They're not feeling okay and they're trying to self-medicate. And then I think that very quickly can lead into things like depression and lead into suicidal ideation or, you know, a suicidal, you know, where people start to go, right, well, that's it. There's no point in me being here anymore. I feel like I've lost the plot. No one really believes me anyway or I'm not going to seek help and I don't really know what's wrong with me. And I think it's really quick for that rabbit hole to, to start. Yeah. Is it, is it still stigmatised those who have been diagnosed with PTSD in society? I think it's still stigmatised in the respect that people, people who are not, who don't know a lot about mental health or people who don't know a lot about trauma will sort of say things like, oh, you know, is it really... Is it really that bad? Or mm. oh, I've I've got PTSD from blah blah blah, and it's like, well, no. Or the best response I had was when I explained to my father what was happening, and he said to me, "Well, you haven't been to war. Why would you have it?" And I said, "No, no, Dad. Like, no, that's not." Mm. So uh, there is there is a stigma in the respect that people, I think, people do sometimes look at you like you're weaker. Mm. And that can be very tough for people if they're worried about seeking help. And people say things that's, that, that are invalidating when they say things like, oh, we haven't been to war. This can't be that bad. Like, you should be over this by now. <laughs> and that's probably the top, what, one to three worst things you can say to someone who's got PTSD. Because if they've got it, they've had an experience. Generally, PTSD occurs because you've had an experience that is out of the ordinary. You're your life or the lives of those that you care about has been threatened in a way where you really thought it was going to have serious injury or serious consequences. And that's what PTSD is. It's an out of the ordinary event. You thought you were going to die or be severely harmed or someone you loved you thought was going to die or be severely harmed or someone that you were with. And and you do. It, it, it affects your whole sense of safety in the entire world. And the world becomes a bad, bad, bad place. And that's, that's, that's where it starts. And that doesn't have to be war. That could be a car accident. That could be an incident where, you know, where you watch a loved one be hurt. You know, it could happen in any sort of situation. It's, mm. it's more common than people think. Yeah, yeah. All right, Tanya, what what exactly are you doing professionally now? 
So I still teach yeah. and then I am working on my, so now I, and I'm working on my business development on the side. So I've created my training programs and mm-hmm. I am just in the process of trying to get them out there. So that's, that's what I do. So I teach the, I still teach and I still enjoy teaching. I'm also doing my mental health first aid um, course in a couple of weeks as well. So I'm basically just working on getting these programs out there, getting this training out into the corporate world or into the government world, because I really believe that there's a strong need for that. Excellent. Excellent. Now, I note that you also work closely with Indigenous clients. I do heaps of Indigenous clients. Yep. I've got to say, I think I've come a long way in my understanding and acceptance of Indigenous culture, because I've got to be quite honest with you, I, I 15 years ago was very intolerant and very, very ignorant, but I still got a long way to go. Does working with Indigenous clients who are at risk, does that pose any particular challenges for you? Look, it's it's understanding. So because I've I've worked a lot with so I le- worked a lot with Indigenous students the, the whole time I've been in education, and I work a lot now. My school has a lot of Indigenous students, so I do a lot of work with Indigenous students. It's really important, I find, to build trust in within with Indigenous clients because, and it makes perfect sense because generally there is a distrust for any type of authority figures and there is a distrust for any type of system hierarchies and they exist because of you know generational trauma that in that most indigenous people have suffered through they have a lot higher risk factors for trauma you know 64% of indigenous young people have have got complex trauma which is really a really, really high. That's double the, you know, nearly double what the, you know, if you compare it to the general population, they're eight times more likely to suffer from child abuse. They're 15 times more likely to be involved in the juvenile justice system. So it's, you know, it's remembering that when you're dealing with people, with, with Indigenous clients, you're actually dealing with a whole bunch of other layers of historical trauma, intergenerational trauma, distrust of an entire system. And it does, and you know, generational poverty, it, it, all of these things do make everything a lot more complicated. So for me, I've learned a lot about Indigenous culture, but that's, that's from time spent. That is time spent working. That is time spent putting to, like I have an Indigenous dance group at my school that I put together. It's putting all that time in. It's building those relationships. It's building that trust. I don't think this is a quick process. And when you work with clients who are Indigenous, you're going to have to build the relationship and the trust first before they're going to open up to you and tell you anything. So there is that. There is definitely that layer of complexity. Yeah. I, I must say one of the one of the most eye-opening things for me ever because where I grew up, it, there's certainly, let's just say, my exposure to anything Indigenous was almost zero. Mm-hmm. And then when I moved out to northeast West Australia, I'm teaching, a, or I was helping teach a, a lovely first aid class and we're talking about people not being able to breathe and Mm. an indigenous client who, who said hey that's exactly right and I was like oh, okay he said yeah I've had to cut down two of my relatives 
once they've tried to hang himself. It just oh god, that, that sort of things just slap yeah. you in the face because it's mm. like this is not where, what you expect where I came from, and this is a reality. It is a reality in the mm. communities, and a lot of people don't either choose to understand that or want to understand that. And it's it's what I find is very difficult sort of when I have conversations with people who don't work very closely with Indigenous or they don't know many Indigenous people and they do have, you know, the media does feed us a, a definite viewpoint there and, and plus people have got their own unconscious bias. But when you really hear stories from people, when you really hear what these people have been exposed to on a daily basis domestic violence, the abuse, the generational poverty. Like when you have these stories, you sort of go, I mean, stories I've heard where people watch their, you know, one one when I was doing an English assignment, I'll never forget one girl, an Indigenous girl wrote about how her mother her mother had a boyfriend who used to go on ice benders and one day they had to that he dragged her mother across the floor and they had to lock themselves into the bedroom for three days because this guy was so violent and unpredictable and they ended up having to break out of their window to go and get a neighbor to get help like you know I remember her writing that in an English story and it was just like you know these are these are things this isn't one off this happens all the time it happens all the time. Mm. And if people understood that, then the way you deal with people is very different because you can understand why they'd be triggered or distrusting because all the systems that are set up to support them haven't done so. The only other group I've seen which, let's say, have institutional tra- trauma like mm. this are some refugees. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And that's another group. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and some of the things, if you get their trust that they'll tell you about, yeah, are beyond the norm. And yet mostly their functional day-to-day as you and I, and you wouldn't even know what's bubbling no. along below the surface. Mm-hmm. Okay, psychological safety. Mm-hmm. It is one of the buzzwords. Mm-hmm. It really it, is. What does it mean to you? So psychological safety to me is very much providing, so it's pro, it's providing an environment that is, it's it's safe. First of all, it's got to be safe for your, for your work, your work place. Mm-hmm. And it's got to be, so it's got to be physically safe. It's got to be mentally safe and um, emotionally safe as well. And what that means is making sure that people's exposure to psychosocial risks is mitigated where possible, or if you can't mitigate the risk, they are being given um, adequate support to get through what they may have experienced. So things like exposure to traumatic events, there needs to be support there. There needs to be support around realising that people who are burnt out and stressed out or putting unrealistic demands on people that they can't meet or making people do jobs without adequate resources or training. All of these things pose psychosocial risks. In the area of resources, for example, the mining sector, one of my big passions is psychosocial safety around sexual harassment and sexual assault reporting because that requires 
a huge amount of training to deal with the response appropriately. You know, creating workplaces where people know that it's not okay to harass people, either sexually harass people or bully people, because that happens consistently. Things like that are really they have such a huge they take such a massive toll on people from their levels of stress and their mental health and people can think of this as this is a buzzword oh everyone's talking about this now it doesn't doesn't matter so the way I explain it to people is we're all responsible for making sure people are psychologically safe if you were at work with someone and they went to weld something and they didn't wear their welding helmet and they didn't wear their protective clothing and equipment would you stop them and say geez I think you might burn your retinas there that might be a bit unsafe or would you let them go and psychosocial safety is exactly the same it's putting people under pressure or putting them in environments where their stress levels and their levels of trauma are being driven extremely high and then doing nothing about it it's the same as letting your welder weld without wearing his helmet without saying geez mate I think that might be a little bit dangerous perhaps you want to put your helmet on there yeah, yeah, it's like PPE for your for your head. That's what this is. Oh, I love that. I, I might use that in future because that's a good. That's a great. Yeah, great it's song. it's it's PPE it's PPE for your head. That's exactly what it is. And if you know, you wouldn't let someone. You wouldn't want someone to perform a task without wearing their protective equipment. And if you didn't say anything, you know, you're you, you know you're not following the Oc Health and Safety Act anyway. But this is the same. I mean, if you're putting people in situations where they're stressed or they're being bullied or they're having a really horrible time or they're, you know, they're being harassed and you sort of go, oh, they'll be all right. That's like that's like letting the world a world without his helmet. Yep. All right. A couple of quick questions and we will have to leave it. This has been great talk, by the way. Oh, I'm um, glad. Hooray. <laughs> <laughs> all right. The future for mentally healthy workplaces in Australia, in your opinion, is it likely to get better or are we going to stay pretty much the same? I, I look, I do hope that it gets better. I do think the fact that we're talking about it is always the start. So these problems thrive in the darkness. If we shine a light on it, it can't stay there hidden and if we talk about it and it becomes more normalized to talk about this and more normalized to understand this then we do have a better safety for psychos you know psychosocial safety workplace mental health safety will be better but we have a huge amount of work to do there is there are some amazing programs that are running out. Like I'm a huge fan of mental health first aid. I think that's really important for that being rolled out to, to everywhere. I think every workplace should be doing that. Mm-hmm. I think that there is, you know, like in the mining sector, for example, like FIFO Focus are doing some incre- incredible work with, you know, breaking the circuit and some of the um, courses they're running, which I think are incredibly important for the people that are out on site. But there's a lot to, there's a lot to go. There's not a lot of understanding about trauma. And there's not a lot of understanding about trauma-informed practice. And I think that if we are really going to see more improvement in that, there needs to be a significant increase in the training and people need to also work on being open 
to the to listening and open to understanding it and not seeing this as oh shit I had to put my tools down to come and sit through another bloody training session on bloody mental health that I don't care and you know it, it, it really I, I hope that the the narrative around it changes because if it doesn't and if the stigma stays, we are not going to make the progress that we really desperately need to. And the statistics of mental health and what it's costing the economy is between 13 to $17 billion a year. Mm. People are, with psychological injury, the average time off is over 16 weeks. Like, it's costing money. So it makes economic sense to invest in this. And it also makes... It's, eth- it's ethically, it's ethically correct to do this. You are going to get a lot more out of your workforce if they are mentally healthy and happy. And it's not, I don't think it's that hard to make that happen. I really don't. Okay. Good, good. All right. If I'm in human resources, if I'm in a training department, if I'm in a safety team and I want to talk to you about coming and running a training program, how do I go about doing that? So you can either contact me on LinkedIn or go to com.au. That's my website. And I will absolutely get back to you and give you any other information that you need. Okay. Now, I know you've got a young family. Does that include people who are not in Western Australia? No, my young family here. Oh, 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 you mean people who want to talk to me elsewhere? Yeah, no, that's fine. Absolutely. Look, I've I can make I I'm gonna make anything happen here, Tom, because I really am passionate about this and I actually think this is important for for everywhere. Brilliant. Tanya Hallett, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. And I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Thank you so much, Tom. Thanks so much for having me. It was great to chat to you. Thanks for listening to Health and Safety Conversations with Tom Bourne. Until next time, stay safe and enjoy the rest of your week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.